Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. Yes, it is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 174. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine. Two fine conversations for you on the podcast this week. A little bit later on, a music legend comes back after several years with a new album. Her first since a harrowing accident uh, cost her both of her legs. The voice is intact and the spirit as well. The great Mary Clayton will join us in the second half of the podcast this week. In the first half, the great and Emmy award-winning writer Treva Silverman visits with us. She was a big part of that Mary Tyler Moore show staff back in the 1970s and earned much acclaim for her efforts there. We caught up with her, though, to talk about the passing of her friend and Mary Tyler Moore show colleague, the great Ed Asner, who passed away recently at the age of 91. Hello there, my friend. How are you? Hi. It's so good to hear your voice. Thank you. It's Hello. wonderful. Wonderful to talk with you. I've missed, I've missed talking with you, although I've enjoyed our, our, our online communications. But uh, this is, you know, this is a, a sad event to talk about the passing of Ed Asner, who was, uh, you know, people throw around the term larger than life a lot, but it, it certainly seemed to apply to him. Very um, Renaissance man also. Um, it's, it's interesting that, um, I, I was thinking about when it's, when it's Ed, it's, it's, let's say, let's say your, let's say my, um, your, your aunt dies. All you really have of your aunt is you have the, every single memory and you have a whole bunch of still photos. But I've been watching uh, a lot of a lot of Marys. A lot. Of, I, I've been watching him, and it's so hard to separate that the that he is gone, and and yet I'm watching him um, being emotional and and being scary, and um, it's hard. It's hard to really, really take it in. Um, but yeah, major, a major loss in so many ways. Do you remember when you first met Ed? <laughs> yes. Yes. My first, uh, I, I, I saw him on, uh, after I started, we, we, we started writing, uh, the Mary Tellamore show, um, about eight months before it went on the air. Oh no, no, it wasn't that long. But we started. Uh, we started watching. Uh, we started writing Mary Tallimore show before we saw uh, the pilot. So I didn't know what he looked like. So there I was, writing about him, writing him. And when I saw the pilot, and when I first met him, my first thought was. He's just adorable. He's, he's adorable with all his blustering and um, hard, hard looks. He was absolutely adorable. 
Um, I wanted to mention something to you. I was thinking about this. Um, after a whole bunch of the, the first season, my girlfriends would start asking me, um, is, is Ed Asner married? Because he's very sexy. And um, I thought so, too. And I said, yes, he's, he's happily married. Um, and so I, I told Jim and Alan about this, and they said, sexy? What? They, they uh, absolutely didn't believe it. And, uh, well, he's overweight. And, no, I, I, I said, I'm telling you what my friends, from, I'm telling you from a woman's point of view, this man is sexy. <laughs> um, they didn't quite. They didn't quite get it. It's just so interesting. Uh, when we talked with Gavin McLeod uh, last year, he was telling us that uh, they had originally envisioned him after he had read uh, for the part of Lou Grant, and he said, "I, I, I can't do that. First of all, I, I've worked with Mary before. I love Mary. I can't. I couldn't be her uh-huh. boss. And I'm not sure the part would have worked. And now we look back, and I can't. You can't imagine anybody else other." Then Ed Asner is Lou Grant, and part of it is that he was able to walk as an actor that very fine line between being that gruff, hard-nosed guy, but you could see through that to the love and respect he had for Mary. I always have thought that it was so uh, sensitive of Gavin to, to say, I'm, I'm not the Lou Grant type, and then he said, I'd like to read for Murray. It was his decision. And, oh, okay, sure. And uh, that's, that's how that happened. Also, that when, when Ed auditioned, he could tell that he gave a lousy audition. So he was walking out the room, and then he, he came and he said, um, I did a lousy job. I'd like to read it again. Um, under the pressure, I, it always knocks me out to think about that because under the pressure of auditioning, which is so hard, I mean, writers have an easy time in one way, which is we're behind our computers. Uh, we can rewrite. We can cross off and delete. Um, but they're, they're, they both were under the pressure, and they both had the sensitivity the, the nerve, it has a nerve to say, I can do it better. Uh, hear, hear me out, I can do it better. And he told us the story of how part of the rap against him in a lot of quarters was that he had done all these these roles as heavies and that there were some people who didn't think he could play comedy. Yeah. Yeah, at, at the beginning... It it re- it really took for for Jim and Alan. It really took a lot of vision for for them to realize. No, he can he can do this. Um, yeah, the the network was not so happy about it uh, before they gave permission and everything because he had been doing all he had been doing roles in which there, there was no sense of any kind of softness underneath the, 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 the toughness. It was just tough 
and uh, fe- fearful. Um, yeah, um, it it always amazes me when something turns out right. Two billion chances for it to to turn out wrong or just misunderstood or mistaken, but the idea of the idea of the show without Ed, yeah, it is it is pretty incomprehensible. Um, Gavin, such a lovely guy and so well suited to to being Murray. Uh, it's it's interesting how how Jim and Alan thought, uh, or actually Ethel Winan, who was the casting director, mm. um, that Ethel thought of him as as Lou, um, not to even not to even mention that I I right now I've been reading a lot of the write ups about about Ed Asner and uh, mostly going, yeah, yeah. And there there was something there uh, about um, that he had, he had been offered bigger, bigger roles. um, But he, he, he said at the time, he said, it was the best role he, he had ever been offered, and he really, really wanted it. Um, it. Oh, you know, you said something about with working with Mary. Also, what I've been thinking about is that um, for Lou Grant, Lou, Lou Grant is interviewing Mary for his uh, associate producer, and. Her answer, her answers. I mean, it, it's a wacky kind of, it's a wacky kind of um, uh, interview. I mean, her answers, <laughs> and then the getting it one under the answer and, and all that. Um, but for Lou Grant himself, as a, as a living, breathing person, to recognize that underneath all those crazy kind of answers and her shyness that there was somebody capable i mean because he was he was running and he, he was running uh, a show and for him to have the perception to, perceptiveness to know that mary richards would be an asset was was very sensitive of him we're talking with Treva Silverman here on Downtown. Uh, well, Ed proved his ability as a comedian, a comic actor, right in that pilot episode with the brilliant timing that he showed and what's become one of the most iconic lines uh, in the yeah. history of television. And, and a lot of laughs in those first couple of seasons, but I thought a real turning point in the development of the Lou Grant character came, I think, in season two with an episode you wrote, uh, The Six and a Half Year Itch, when Lou discovers that his son-in-law is cheating on his daughter. Oh, you know, I've not that I've almost forgotten about that, but that's so interesting that it's about, yeah, <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Um, yeah, he's pretty, he's, pre- uh, why don't you, why don't you 
recollected a little bit for me. Well, I, what I liked about that episode so much is that he's obviously uh, initially incredibly angry uh, at, at the young man and, and then also doesn't want his daughter to be hurt. And he yeah. handles that situation with such kindness and compassion uh, and grace. And I thought it was really uh, when we began to see, we'd seen the funny side of Lou Grant. Then we saw the real humanity of that character and the struggles that he was going through uh, as a dad, as a husband, as a man. Ah, and in his, recogni- in his recognizing that if he takes a gruff, harsh tone with his son-in-law, it's not going to work. Mm. Um, he's just going to sow dissension between them. Um where he sees, he sees him. He sees his son-in-law as a guy, and he talks to him in understanding kind of guy stuff, um, so that the message gets through. But there's, but they're still friends. And then you came up with the idea of having Lou and Edie break up and and what was such a a powerful, not just episode, but story arc for those characters. Ah, thank you. Um, What what we were talking about before, about uh, so many opportunities for something to go wrong and and, uh, what a celebration it is when something goes right. It It came out of a talk... I had been doing a lot of Marys, and um, very often Jim and Alan would, I, I say it like just one word, Jim, Jim and Alan would say, we, we need something for Valerie. But this time they said, well, you've done all these episodes. What would you like to write about? And without even thinking it over, um, I said, I I would like to see Lou in, in some kind of pain. We've always seen him be the, the, the gruff uh, drinking companion, um, but underneath, we, we don't know what, what lies underneath. We don't know anything about that. And um, we, we haven't really seen him... Uh, in in an intimate relationship thing. So out of that came the idea of um, suppose they suppose they have to separate, which which would not only uh, give an opportunity to, to to show all the different sides of him, but um, it was I think it was the fourth year. That would be 1970, yeah, 1974, and it was exactly, exactly dead center of women's groups and um, women seeing who, who and what a woman is besides being a wife and all that. So it was very, very much of its time. It's one of those luck, luck things. I mean, had it been 1954, it, it would have been uh, uh, she, she decides to 
not use a frying pan, but to, you know, <laughs> bake instead. I mean, it's, it, it, it's all it's all context, as everything in life is. It's all context. I, I was um, reading uh, uh, Jennifer Cation Armstrong's wonderful book uh, on the making of the series, and, and she talks about the fact that uh, over the course of, of doing the series, Ed Asner, not Lou Grant, but Ed, Ed Asner, the person, really became a feminist, and, and how much of that was, was being around so many strong, independent women, well, like yourself. He, uh, he, he was so, I, I didn't know, I didn't know at the time really, really who Ed was. I mean, I had my own life and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but found out much later that he, he was so intensely political, um, political, well, he was so intense an activist coming mm. out of his strong, uh, beliefs and started, he started, uh, once once he got fame, once his name meant something through through Mary Tyler Moore and through uh, Lou Grant uh, later on, um, he decided that he could either um, just just be an actor and uh, keep his opinions to himself, or he could da da da. He could he could be an activist, and he decided hell or high water. He's going to be an activist, even if it affects some fans who say no no. I'm a conservative. Um, I don't like this guy. You know, mouthing off. Um, and he was a big supporter of the ERA movement. Um, lent his name to it. Campaigned. Later on, my God, he he was, well, he was president of Screen Actors Guild, SAG. Mm. He was president, and um, that's that's a tough that's a tough pre- presidency. Um, it's not. I mean, it's it's a twenty-four hour a day thing, which you can't do for twenty-four hours a day. And he was very ardently uh, against capital punishment. He was big on uh, gu- gun control. Um, there was a uh, there was a big thing happening in in, in Screen Actors Guild where they were going to take some. They had already said that they were going to take some action um, that would do X, Y, Z, but incidentally would uh, cut health benefits for for uh, older older SAG members. Right. And so he was. Oh, he might have talked. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, you you surprise me so much. Because sometimes I'll be talking about something, and you'll you'll already know all about it, and all the footnotes. <laughs> and all, you just know your stuff, Mister Rich. 
Well, I, it's you talk about his his activism, and uh, in some ways, it, he would go on to say that it probably cost him a TV series. Lou Grant was going great guns, getting wonderful ratings, uh, uh, great critical acclaim as well. But speaking yeah. out against El Salvador apparently uh, pissed off the wrong people. Bill Paley being one of them, and and that series was off the air. But but he would rather speak his mind and stand up for what was right. Was it Bill Paley? I always wondered. Um, yeah, uh, I I had read that um, at that point, it was 1983, I think. Um, at that point, Lou, the, the Lou Grant series was always in the top ten. And who cares? Who cancels a top ten thing out of out of the blue? Um, yeah, but he. I don't think anybody. I I think hardly anybody uh, outside of of Ed would have continued to do that. Um, and it was so brave, and it was so courageous. Um, that's, that's one, that's one thing, it's so hard, it's so hard to be in the public eye and not have your goal to remain untarnished. Mm. Um, God, when, when you think about, not particularly now, but a number of years ago, even like ten years ago, oh, somebody is is coming out um, as trans. Oh my God, they can't do it; it'll ruin their uh, career. Um, that wasn't his. He he was attempting to. He was attempting, in a very authentic way, to have it both ways to, to provide a balance, but not to shut up and if if it had repercussions on his career so be it treva silverman with us on downtown you and i were were chatting online the other night and it was three months uh, to the day after the passing of gavin mcleod and what a what a tough year it's been for the mary tyler moore family with gavin and ed and then back in january cloris leachman and alan burns passing away as well yeah, this year has this year has really taken its toll. Um, yeah, Chloris and Chloris, and then Gavin talking about Chloris. Gavin and Ed talking about Chloris, and then when it happened with Ga- with Gavin, and they were such clo- they were such close friends, and Ed. Put a uh, put put out a statement saying, "Now it's just you and me, Betty." Mm. Um, because he, he because he was the uh, the two of them were the only ones remaining. Um, Alan Burns is for me. Um, a whole different part of 
a whole different part of my heart um, because Alan Alan was well when when I was saying um, uh, Jim and Alan um, with little hyphens in between (laughs) um, Alan was if there would have been no Jim, if there would have been no Alan, there would have been no Mary Tallymore because show, because it was the two of it was the two of them. They were so beautifully aligned, and Jim Jim has said and continues to say um, that Alan brought the sweetness and the niceness to, to the show. I don't know if I entirely agree because Jim, Jim is a powerhouse on so many levels, but I'm just, I'm just quoting him. I'm trying to remember um, the story. If I hope I remember this right, wasn't it Alan who said to you when they decided to make uh, Georgia Engel a regular on the show, wasn't it Alan who told you you should be the one to tell her since you had really created that character? Yes. Oh, what a what a lovely memory you have, especially if it's something nice about me. Um, <laughs> it, uh, well, actually not about me, about, uh, about a story that I told you about, Alan. That's right. I had, I had created the character of, of Georgette and, uh, when I brought the script in to Alan and said to him, he said, who do you see? Do you see anybody? And I said, uh, yeah, uh, George Engel. And he said, great idea. And, um, yeah, when, when she scored such a wonderful dear, uh, um, entry in, uh, appearance, um, the first time, and they decided to put her on, not uh, not just at one time, but as a semi-regular. It was Alan's sweetness and dearness, um, and Alan-ness, when he said, um, "We we want you to tell her that she's a semi-regular because it was your idea to cast her." That's that's. I guess that's, in its way, what Jim meant. Um, Alan, Alan was, Alan was one of my closest friends, and um, one of the few people on earth who has an incredible marriage. In that they married extremely early, and they both did. Well, they, they did. What is so impossibly hard when you marry really early, particularly in the gener- their generation, where things changed and changed and changed, um, it, and they changed along with it, and they grew along with it, and they grew closer. Um, bef- before January, when it when it happened, um, I had been meeting. I had been meeting them for dinner over over the past years, 
and uh, it's it was the kind of marriage that everybody hopes they will have in their older years. Um, but I saw them during their middle years and their beginning years, and they were so much a part of each other's changes. Um, yeah, Alan, uh, Alan, dot, dot, dot. Mm. Well, you know, we didn't, we can't claim to have known Ed well. He was on the show uh, with us several times. Uh, we met him when he was in town doing a play, and we had actually, we had planned to bring him here to do uh, uh, one of his one-man shows uh, back in April of 2020 when COVID hit. And I, I just uh, communicated with his daughter, Liza, a couple of weeks ago about trying to, to reschedule. And, and he was going to work with uh, a couple of my high school drama kids in the play. Oh. And so, you know, even though we didn't know him well, I, I feel like we missed out uh, on that opportunity and missed out on the chance to just talk with him some more because it was always such a, a wonderful experience. But it, but it's so good to, to talk with you again. I'm, I'm sorry it's under such sad circumstances, but any chance to talk with you adds a little sunshine to our day. How sweet. Thank you so much. And for me, the same. For me, the same. Treva Silverman, remembering her friend Ed Asner and uh, others from the Mary Tyler Morris Show family that we've lost here in 2021. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance. When we come back, a legendary voice has got a new album. Mary Clayton next on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Unmistakable voice of the legendary Mary Clayton. She has performed with people like uh, the Rolling Stones, Carol King, and of course, perhaps best known for her work on the Rolling Stones, Gimme Shelter. She was uh, one of the subjects of the great documentary film 20 Feet from Stardom. Not long after that, suffered a serious accident which ended up causing the amputation of both of her legs. But while in the hospital, her friend, producer Lou Adler, told her she had to get back to singing, and she has fulfilled that promise with a brand-new album. That was part of the title cut, Beautiful Scars. We had the wonderful pleasure of talking with the great Mary Clayton. Mary, hello there. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. How are you today? I am just wonderful. How are you? I am wonderful also, darling. I am uh, so happy to talk with you after listening and being so moved and inspired by the new album. And, of course, the story behind it, too, for people who don't know, you were in a, a devastating accident not long after the release of 20 Feet from Stardom. But I understand it was, was while you were still in the hospital recovering that you told your friend Lou Adler that you would sing and you would record again. Well, uh, he just 
was insistent. I mean, every time I would speak to him, he, you know, he has, he's, he's known as, affectionately known as Uncle Lou. All of my life and career, he has always just been my anchor and my dear, dear friend. And uh, after the, the accident had happened, after it happened, he would call two or three, he would either come or he'd call two or three times a day. So he was just adamant. He says, Mel, you got to get well. He was encouraging me. you got to get well because you know you have to sing again. And to no Lou, he talks above a whisper, Mary, you have to sing again. <laughs> and I'm saying, please, Lou, do you know what I've just been through? This is what I'm saying to myself. I, I don't know if I want to sing again. I won every award in the world. We had just won an Oscar for 20 people in stardom. We had just won People's Choice Award. We had just done the Sundance. We had just won a Grammy. We won everything for that film. And I said, well, you know, I, I don't know if I really need to sing again, you know. So he says, no, you have to get well so you can sing again. So he was so insistent that after I got out of the hospital, he says, you know what, um, you should, you know, we should do a record. You, you really need to do. So we started calling. He started calling my dear friend, Terry Young, who's the co-producer. And Terry said, oh, I have great songs. I have these songs for Mary. I've been holding these songs and holding these songs. <laughs> he says, I'm coming over, and I want to play them for you. So we made a date. He came over, and he played Oh, What a Friend. That was the very first song. I think it's about the, the eighth and ninth song on the record. And it just touched our souls. And then he played Deliverance. And then he, then he played Room at the Altar, and we, just, we were just floored. So we had three songs. And then <clears throat> he says, Lou says, you know what? We're going in the studio. I said, what? He says, yeah, we're going to the studio. You need to, we need to record these songs. We're in the studio, and we're sitting and just kind of hanging out and doing listen back. And he turns to me, and he says, you know what? Let's call Diane. I said, Diane who? <laughs> Diane Warren. So I said, Diane Warren? He says, yes. So he spoke to Diane in the studio, and she says, well, what's going on? And he says, well, I'm sitting here with Mary Clayton, and we're doing this record. Doing a record? What? I don't know. I thought Mary, she said, he says, no, she's fine, and we're doing this record. She says, Lou, I'll have you and Mary a song in two weeks. So she sat back and penned Beautiful Scars, mm -hmm. which is one of the greatest songs I've had the opportunity to do in my entire career. And it was so apropos for what I had been through. It is such a beautiful and powerful song. And the whole album, in many ways, brings you back to your roots singing in your father's parish, the New Zion Baptist Church. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it just took me all the way back. Sometimes you wonder, well, why do one of these artists, they go back they go back to gospel or they go back to uh, um, worship songs or they go back. Well, when you go through what I, what I went through, you're going, to be, you're going to be thankful. To me, this was a humble offering to God, this record, for giving me my life back. Because, you know, by any means, I mean, anything that, if you, had you looked at the car or looked at anything that was a part of that accident, I didn't, you know, I shouldn't have been here. But nothing happened to my throat. Matter of fact, I asked the doctor, he says, well, Miss Clayton, we had to make some serious decisions, you know, and he got his hand on my shoulder and said, he's going to tell me what had happened. Of course, I already knew what had happened. He said, we had to amputate both legs from the knee down. So, you know, the first thing I asked the doctor, did anything happen to my voice? He said, no, <laughs> to your voice, Miss Clayton. We knew you were a singer. Your voice was perfect. I said, well, I'll be all right. Nothing happened to my voice. I can deal with the rest. But if nothing happened to my gift, 
I'm good. We're talking with Mary Clayton on downtown. One of the most moving songs on the album is one you recorded, I think, 50 years ago, the great Leon Russell tune, a song for you, yes. and, and such a different read on it from when you first did it, but also so wonderful to have uh, your late husband, Curtis, and his beautiful work on that song as well. Yes, yes. I was floored. I was floored when Lou said to me, he said, listen, I'm going to send the song down. I didn't know he had done that. I'm going to say something now for you to listen to, but Kevin has to be sitting next to you. He said, what do you mean, my son? That's his godson, is my son. So he said, Kevin, you need to be there with your mother when, 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 when you play the song. So we're sitting and we're listening, and I hear the first part, and then comes the solo. And my son looks at me, and I look at him, and he says, Mom, that's Dad. Mm -hmm. Lou had taken the solo from the Mary Clayton album and dropped it into Beautiful Skies album. And it was just beautiful. And then the tears came. And then the, <laughs> all that emotion came, you know. But I thought it was just great, a perfect idea. And it sounds just incredible. And I, I'm, I'm just really honored and happy that he's on this with me. I also love, speaking of family, the Ooh Child medley and you getting to work okay. with your granddaughter. How great is that? Yes, she's the best thing in the world. She says to me, oh, Grandma, I said, Kalia, you think, her name is Kylia. I said, Kylia, you think you can, can do this? She says, Grandma, I'm your granddaughter. Of course I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> I am your, I, no, was, I am your granddaughter, Grandma. <laughs> Uncle Lou, I can do this. He said, you sure you can do this, Kylia? She says, oh, yes, Uncle Lou. I, you know, I am, that's my grandma. You know, she taught me well. She has a mouth on her like me, of course. <laughs> and so she did a great, great job. I was very, very proud of her. And she, she just stood there like a seasoned pro. I couldn't believe it. Of course, I left so she wouldn't have to get, you know, have to look at me and, and want, you know, uh, you know, want to know if I'm doing okay. I left out the studio and left her in Lou's hands and Terry's hands and Lou's wife's hands. And she did very, very well. She, she stood there like a seasoned pro. And she also did some background work with all of her aunties who were like the waters, you know, Maxine and Julia, and they was, had tears in their eyes and said, Mary, that baby stood there with us and sung like a seasoned pro. We couldn't believe it. They knew her since she was two years old. So, you know, it was just a great experience. And so Terry looks at me, the other producer, he turns around and says, well, Mary, you have passed the torch. I said, oh, the torch has been passed. He says, the torch has been passed. <laughs> but she's a great kid and uh, very, very gifted. You've told the story a million times, and it was documented so well in the film 20 Feet from Stardom. But my favorite part of the story of your work with the Rolling Stones on Gimme Shelter is not getting called in the middle of the night, making your way in there. Uh, but it's uh, it's the fact that after you had done it once and you listened to it, was it was it Mick or was it the producer who said, you, you want to give it one more pass and try it again? And, and you knocked it out of the park. No, well, Mick held up one finger, you know, like one more time, and then Jimmy said, well, you want to do it one more time? I said, well, I'm going to give you one more for safety, and then I'm going home. <laughs> I said, well, okay, just, just keep the crack. Can you keep the crack in your voice? I said, I don't know if I can keep the crack or not, but I'll try. And so we did it again, and the crack was still there because it was late. You know, I was a little bit tired and a little bit pregnant, you know. <laughs> so uh, uh, we did it, and it was wonderful, and I'm waving goodbye. I, I only did it two or three times, and then I was out. I was gone. 
because it was so emotional and it was so high. It was really high, you know, especially the rape murder thing was really, was really, really high. I don't know where my voice, I don't know where I got that voice from that late at night, but apparently it was part of my destiny to do that record. Absolutely. Well, and, and to do this new record as well, it is such a wonderful yes. record, beautiful scars, uh, the brand new one from Mary Clayton. I think some of the absolute best work of your career. It is a delight for us to get to talk with you, Mary. We wish you good health and continued success. Thank you so much. That is the awesome Mary Clayton. The new album is terrific. It's called Beautiful Scars. Our thanks to Mary and thanks to the wonderful Treva Silverman as well. And thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown, the podcast.